Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. Welcome to our most recent podcast. I'm delighted today to welcome Dr. Allison Field, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the Harvard Medical School and Associate Professor of Epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Field is a highly accomplished researcher who's done work, as few people have, in both areas of obesity and eating disorders, uh, has worked with very large populations in some of the nation's premier epidemiology studies, and as I said, is a highly accomplished scientist. So, Allison, delighted to have you here. Thank you very much. All right, so for this podcast, we're going to talk about a terribly important public health issue, prevention of weight gain. And what, what has the population done in order to address this issue? What are people doing? What can be done? And what might be the best way to prevent weight gain? But to lead it off, why don't you talk to us about why it's so important to think about this issue in the first place? Well, we've seen a tremendous rise in the prevalence of obesity, even among children. And that's inc- troubling because children who are overweight are very likely to be overweight as adults. They're also less likely to get married, to get accepted to college and much more likely to develop diabetes, hypertension, postmenopausal breast cancer, and, and other morbidities. And it's also the case, I know, that obesity is a very difficult condition to treat once people have it because the relapse rates are so high. Absolutely. It is very difficult to, so, to treat. So preventing weight gain becomes a very compelling public health issue. Um, do you think it's, let me start with sort of a broad question, do you think it's possible to prevent weight gain given all the environmental factors bearing down on people, all the marketing and access to foods 24-7, you know, it's all foods in schools, one can go on and on? I think it will be very difficult, but I do think it's possible. And I think as you alluded to, we need to look at it in many different ways. I think one problem we've had is people have tried to intervene just on the children themselves or maybe just on one school, and you need to go much, much broader than that. Well, it's nice to hear an optimistic note that you believe <laughs> it can take place. I do, too, if, if the proper things are done. Um, so people have been getting conflicting advice about what they should do about weight that comes into play when people are trying to lose weight, but also in the context of for preventing weight gain. Can you give us a sense of how big of an issue that is and how many conflicting pieces of advice there are? There are so many, and they change over time. So for a while, everyone thought it should be a low-fat diet. Then people thought it should be a low-carbohydrate diet. Now a lot of interest in a low-glycemic load diet. Um, Others of us think it's just calories. If you take in too many of them, whatever their type, it's a problem. Some people think it should be have more fruits and vegetables. There are a lot of pieces of conflicting info out there. And then, of course, there's the physical activity part, which can bring its own set of conflicting pieces of advice. It's it's very true. There are people who think it's not helpful at all, and others of us who think it's really fundamental to include physical activity in any weight control approach. Well, one of the things I admire you for the most is you've taken on this important issue and tried to bring some science to it so you can actually have some data to back up claims about what might be helpful in prevention of weight gain. So can you give us a sense of the kind of studies that you've done on this and what populations you've chosen to work with? Certainly. We have several cohorts. We have the Nurses' Health Study, which was started in 1976. There are 121,000 registered female nurses, and they've been followed every other year since then. We have the second nurses' cohort, the Nurses' Health Study 2, which is 116,000 registered female nurses who've been followed every other year since 1989. 
And to and put then, that in context, many researchers are happy if they have a sample of 100 or 200 people, and much less 100,000. So this is an enormous resource. We're very spoiled, and now we have the cohorts of their children. So we have 17,000 of their children in the Growing Up Today study, who we've been following for over a decade. So in the context of these studies, how have you addressed this issue of prevention of weight gain? Well, we've looked at the children over time, and we look repeatedly at their weight, same with their mothers, and look at their weight changes over time and, and look at their dietary practices, look at their beliefs about exercise, how important it is or is not, um, looked at uh, whether or not they're dieting, and looked at their dietary intake, as well as if um, they are engaging in unhealthy weight control behaviors, and see how that predicts their subsequent weight changes. And can you highlight some of the most important findings from that? Certainly. We, we find that physical activity is incredibly important. In, in fact, that girls who exercise at least five times a week gain significantly less weight, about two pounds less over four years than their peers. Um, we find that diet in and of itself is, is not enough to control weight, whether you know, that's a low-calorie diet or a low-fat diet. It, it really needs to be combined with exercise, which nicely actually matches our, our recommendations we, we make for people. So it's nice to know the science supports those, those recommendations. I think based on our data, I would suggest frequent exercise with limiting portions. It's not so important exactly what someone's eating. Just eating less of it is probably very helpful, particularly if you match it up with some physical activity. Can you speculate on why exercise might be so important in this context? I mean, given that we're talking about prevention of weight gain, there's, of course, the obvious thing that exercise helps burn calories. But could there be other things active in that whole picture? Well, I think there's there's several things. One is that if you are physically active, you're going to build more muscle mass. So then no matter what you're doing, you're burning more calories. So that's helpful. Um, hopefully, you're actually then going to be able to not have to deprive yourself so much of what you're eating because you're, you're burning more calories. Um, through exercise, and nobody likes deprivation. So, and, and no one's very good at deprivation. So, if you're physically active, it's going to be a little easier to stay with whatever diet changes you've made because they won't need to be so drastic. Now, you've made an important distinction between <clears throat> physical activity and being inactive, and how they're not necessarily the reciprocal of one another. Can you explain that concept? Certainly. Physical inactivity is a time that, that someone spends, let's say, watching TV or just hanging out on the couch. It's not the flip side of how active you are. In fact, you could be very, very active, such as I can go out in a training run for three hours and then sit on the couch and, and watch two movies in a row. And in that day, I'm going to be super inactive and super active. So they are completely separate constructs. Okay. Um, another advantage potentially to the physical activity is that it, it, people are not engaged in sedentary behavior at that time, like watching television where they might then go to the refrigerator to eat, be exposed to food marketing messages on TV that themselves may want to make people eat. Does that make sense as a possible benefit of the activity? Absolutely. I'd never thought it makes a lot of sense. I, I think a, a lot of what we, we know about the downside of watching TV is that all these messages, not only to eat unhealthy foods now, but to then go to the store and buy them when you're, you're there later. So being active, you're, you're not exposed to any of that. So you made a very uh, powerful point that physical activity has to be part of the picture. Um, turning to the food part of it, um, what do you think about the issue of adding good foods into the diet, and what do you think that would do to the intake of foods that are less healthy? That is, if you, say, get people to increase their fruit and vegetable consumption by 20%, or let's make up a number, 
will that necessarily displace the unhealthy foods or will it just add on calories that are already in the mix? It's, it's a really good question. And I think one that has not been addressed enough in public health, we need people to substitute. So if we're getting them to eat more fruits and vegetables, it needs to be instead of eating other foods that aren't as healthy. Right now, a lot of times we just recommend to people eat five servings a day of fruits and vegetables. Um, instead of saying eat five servings of fruits and vegetables and therefore have fewer servings of cake, ice cream, nachos, chips, or something else. Okay. One thing that you have studied in this context is snacking. What have you found with that? It's a really good question. We've studied snack food intake, um, and we don't really have great questions on snacking. And what we found is in and of itself, intake of snack foods is not a very strong predictor of weight change. But I don't think it means that kids should be eating or adults should be eating these foods. I think it means you could snack on a lot of different foods, and it's just eating too many calories it's, it's, is the problem. And you could do that with a hostess ho-ho, or you could do it eating five bowls of cereal or stopping at the fast food restaurant on the way home from work or school. You know, it's interesting because people have talked about snacking being one of the many ways that the food environment has changed so much. So when I remember back to being a kid, we basically had three meals a day, and you might have had a snack when you came home from school, but that was pretty much it. And now with food available all, all day long in schools and vending machines in workplaces and you know drive-in restaurants everywhere, th there's just so much food availability. So snacking really has taken on a more prominent role in the diet, hasn't it? It, it absolutely has. We have food available 24-7, and I do think that's one of the biggest problems that we have. We also have just the whole concept of what it is to have a meal. So you don't have families who are sitting down together. People are just eating throughout the day. And I think pretty unaware of what they're eating throughout the day. Where do sugar-sweetened beverages fit in this picture? It's one of the most consistent findings as a, as a dietary predictor of weight gain that um, the kids who drink soda gain more weight. So I, I think if we were to target one area of diet to intervene upon to try to limit weight gain, it would be sugar-sweetened beverages. That sounds good. So what would be some take-home messages then on the prevention of weight gain if people are listening to this podcast who are parents or even researchers interested in taking on other questions? What would, you, what would the overall messages be, do you think? Well, one is that you need to include some physical activity in the mix. And, and that's hard for a lot of people. We can outsource um, changes in diet by, dying, by di buying different foods, but you can't do that with activity. And and I think we can't make it something people hate. You need to find an activity that you like, but it needs to be like brushing your teeth, something that you just do every day. I think we need to eliminate sugar-sweetened beverages. There's nothing beneficial in them, and they certainly predict weight gain. And I think we need to limit portion sizes um, and not worry maybe so much about is it how many percentage of calories from fat are coming from a food, more just eating less of it. Okay, one final question, and you and I have discussed this before is this very interesting and complex interaction between physical activity and diet. And <clears throat> I was mentioning to you but before we started this, some studies done way back in the 1960s with, with laboratory animals showing that if you gave animals access to a, a high-fat, highly palatable diet, they would gain tremendous amounts of weight, of course. But the, some of the animals in the study were then given access to an exercise wheel, and it tempered, didn't eliminate the, the weight gain, but it tempered it to some extent. And it suggested that there might be these impacts of exercise on what people choose to eat, and then vice versa, what people choose to eat might affect their likelihood of being physically active. 
And I was wondering if um, if there's any way that, that you'd be able to look at that, or do you think that's an important issue? I think it's a really important issue and one that hasn't been studied in humans, at least not recently. And we certainly can look at that in our data. We could look at people who have made changes in their activity and then look at the changes in diet that they make, as well as vice versa. And I think it's a great suggestion. Good. Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much. It's so our guest, our guest today was Dr. Allison Field, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the Harvard Medical School and Associate Professor in Epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, I welcome you to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of the other excellent podcasts that were recorded and, of course, a variety of other resources, including a free email newsletter that comes out monthly and a variety of other materials on food and food policy issues. Thank you.